Welcome to the Lift Church podcast. We pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to live up to your God-given potential. But we are in week three of our Loud and Clear series. And um, I was told last week that it was like I have found my old mojo again. I don't know why, but a couple of uh, people... Um, as I was debriefing with them, I was saying, how's it going? I was like, it was like you were yourself. I was like, what am I normally like? <laughs> but I think last week's message, I was so excited um, because what, what God was revealing to me and what God was going to do, if, if there's a, honestly, I'm more excited this week. I'm actually really excited uh, about this week and what God is going to unpack uh, for us. And last week we spoke about how God's Word, uh, Jesus spoke about it as though it's a lamp. And that's why we got this beautiful um, Kmart lamp that is falling apart, but we'll stay together for the rest of this message. And um, uh, Jesus said in Luke 8, 16 to 18, No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar, puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you Listen, and we spoke about how Jesus wasn't talking about us being the lamp. The lamp is God's word. God puts his lamp in a place where we can see. And we need to learn how to come in in order to have the full benefits of the light. Anyone remember that message from last week? It's on podcast. It is a brilliant message, if I can say so myself, because it wasn't me. It was God depositing truth into people's lives. And we're going to go further this week and talk about some of the things, one thing actually, that stops all of us at some stage in our life from fully coming in. And that thing is shame. Shame is a powerful force that stops us from coming into God's presence. And I'm going to be using Genesis chapter 3 this morning to unpack with you what shame does. And then from there, we're going to talk about how to deal with shame. But if you do have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It's a very famous uh, uh, scripture, but we will read it this morning. Now, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may not eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Sorry, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from that tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When a woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he, walked, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? I read an article a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was written by a psychologist who was making a critique on what is a apparently 
because I haven't really seen it, so I'm saying apparently. Uh, but apparently this movement that is gaining a lot of momentum, and it's called the self-love movement. The self-love movement is, is rapidly gaining uh, traction in, in, in the U.S. People are writing books. People are writing 30-day programs. You can even download apps on self-love. And in this program, you will learn how to love yourself. Go to a day spa. Go to the beach. Eat fried chicken. Yeah, I don't know. You can tell I've not been a part of this program <laughs> at all. That's how I think I love myself. Feed me fried chicken. And, um, and she, she was critiquing this movement because she was getting so much traction. And she, and, and she wrote about it. And, and this is what she said. I actually happen to love myself. But if I never had anyone in my life who loved me, I wouldn't be able to because I'm human. And the whole issue that she had with the self-love movement is the fact that the self-love movement does not include people in it. You can literally self-love yourself in a cave. That sounds very wrong. <laughs> but the whole program doesn't include anything about getting around people. And for this psychologist, it was a big problem because her research and many other research has shown that if we are not in relationship with people, if we do not have people around us, we don't actually know who we are. That is a scientific fact. And in fact, another psychologist who, is, who has researched relationships for a long time, and she, she wrote this sentence, you learn about who you are by looking in the eyes of people you love. So any of you think that you are completely self-determining, if you think that in and of yourself you know who you are, you're completely wrong. The science is against you. This is not me talking from a pastor's point of view. I'm talking from a research point of view. If you think you can know who you are in and of yourself, you are completely wrong. Human beings live in relationship with one another, and the eyes that we look into of the people that we love help us to develop our self-identity. That is a truth. That is 100% truth. And this raised a question in me as I was thinking about this. What happens if you look into the wrong eyes? What happens if you... You see, we, we talk about the people we love, and we all have loved ones, but it doesn't necessarily make them good lovers. We can say that our families are our loved ones. That is a cultural term that we use nowadays. These are my loved ones. But how many of you have that crazy auntie that doesn't know how to love you? You know? I'm Asian, so I see some aunties, then they're like, ah, boy, so fat, ah. No, I don't feel love. I'm not looking into your eyes. Because in your eyes, all you see are fat people. I work very hard for this. Calling her a loved one doesn't make her a good lover. I don't mean lover in the cultural term. I mean a person who knows how to give love. We, we, you can go to high school and you can have friends that stay with you all five years of your high school. And then 10 years reunion, you've been keeping in touch and, and, and you've been together as friends for 15 years. That doesn't make them a good lover. Is there, is there a closeness? Absolutely. Have you shared a lot of life? Absolutely, but does that mean that you should be going to them, staring into their eyes and saying, tell me who I am? I don't know. 
there's an issue with that. And this really links into what I want to talk about today. And I want to talk specifically about shame and a little bit of guilt. But shame and guilt, uh, uh, along with two other emotions, embarrassment and pride, these four emotions are called self-conscious emotions. You can go on Google, you can write self-conscious emotions, this will come up. This is a um, scientific and psychological fact that we experience, or, well, theory, if you will. And, and they put these four emotions together because these four emotions are very different from every other emotion that you experience. Other experiences of emotion tends to be somewhat external, but these four emotions are more internal. What I mean by that is that these four emotions are what informs you of who you are. You use these four emotions to determine where you are at in life and whether you are doing well or not. That's why they're called self-conscious emotions. So let's take pride, for example, as a self-conscious emotion. By the way, I forgot something. Self-conscious emotions arise through our perception of someone else's evaluation of ourselves. Does that make sense? So, for example, with pride, I say something really funny, you laugh. I see that you are laughing, and I therefore evaluate that what I said is funny, and I feel pride because I made you laugh, and that means Nate is funny. See? I'm funny. It's true. Oh, you are feeding my pride right now. That is how, in a very simplistic way, self-conscious emotions work. And, and so, at the same time, there's a whole bunch of you with your arms crossed. Yeah? And so I told that joke, and you did not want to laugh. Because you had lemons for breakfast. I don't know, maybe you're trying to hold a fart in or something. I need to make myself feel good. And in the same, in the same space, right, I can see Beck laughing, and she has to. She's married to me. And then I can see fart holder in a row not laughing, and I can evaluate, maybe I'm not so funny. It's interesting, hey, who should I be listening to? Who should I be looking to? Well, that's where your perception comes in. That's where your internal mechanisms are at work. That's how these things just operate in our lives. We actually, to a huge extent, choose what we are paying attention to and what it says to us. That is what self-conscious emotions does in us. It, it, it moves our conscious awareness of what people are saying and doing, and through those, they help us to regulate our lives. In a healthy person, self-conscious emotions are very important. They help us to discern right from wrong, and they help us to stay in a, in a good space. But, um, but shame is another thing altogether. And I don't know if shame is a good thing at all. Let me explain why. See, guilt has a message for us. When we experience these messages, we, uh, these emotions, they tell us messages. And the emotion of guilt says this, I did that wrong. Say it with me, I did that wrong. Yep, got the emphasis, I did that wrong. Guilt is external in the sense that you think about something that you have done and you feel guilty about it. So to give you an example, I go for a dinner party at my friend's house, and at this dinner party, I uh, load up my plate way too full, because that's what boys do, and my full plate, walking back to the table, and, 
and uh, I, uh, yeah, I, got, I can't juggle the food, and it falls off the plate. In trying to catch the food, I drop the plate. The plate breaks. And, um, and my friend says, that was my favorite plate. I've been eating off that for 10 years. And uh, what do I experience? I experience guilt, because I did that wrong. Yeah? And this is what happens when you feel guilty. It motivates you to make repairs for what you did wrong. And so what do I do? I, I apologize profusely. I'm so sorry I broke your 10-year-old plate. I'm so sorry about this. And then the next day I go to um, Kmart. <laughs> where do you go to buy plates? You, I go to Kmart because that's where I think plates are found. And I buy a plate that looks alike. Um, and I go back to my friend's house and I say, I'm really sorry about breaking your plate. Here's, here's, um, here's a new one. And if my friend accepts it, I have made reparation for what I've done, and the guilt is gone. That's how guilt operates. Very simplistic, um, but it helps you to see when you do that wrong, it motivates you to fix that. But what shame says is kind of subtle because it's very similar, but shame says, I did that wrong. Say that with me. I did that wrong. So guilt says, I did that wrong. Shame says, I did that wrong. Shame has a bit more of a self-defining aspect to it. And if shame continues on in your life and you continue to meditate on shame, that sentence can actually be shortened and shame begins to tell you, I am wrong. It has this self-defining aspect to it, and shame begins to become your identity. I am wrong. And we just read from Genesis chapter 3, but I would like us to just go back by one verse to Genesis 2 verse 25, because there's a very important detail that I haven't told you yet. When God created Adam and Eve, they were already naked. He was like, we don't need no Maya, we don't need no David Jones, we don't need any of that. You've got a garden and you've got two naked people and that was very good. That was what God, was, God had done. And in Genesis 2.25, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They felt no shame. This is important because at the beginning of creation, this is right at the start of the Bible, we are told about something that Adam and Eve did not experience. And the Bible did not take pains to describe to us that Adam and Eve did not fear. It didn't say that. It didn't say Adam and Eve did not worry or were anxious. When we get to the New Testament and when we see Jesus speaking to people, He often tells them, do not fear, do not worry, do not be anxious. But Jesus never says, do not shame. But yet here at the beginning of the Bible, we find that there's something about our human experience that wasn't supposed to have shame involved in it. And the rest of Genesis chapter 3 that we had just read, if you understand that shame was never God's intention, you will see this in a very new light. And so as we plot our way through this, I hope that I can show to you what shame truly does in our lives. Adam and Eve, they were naked, they were in the garden, they felt no shame, and then this serpent came. The serpent represents the enemy of our soul. Uh, the serpent represents one that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And the serpent comes to Eve and he says to Eve, are you uh, allowed to eat of all the fruit of the, the garden? And Eve is not, and I'm not allowed to touch that one even, uh, which by the way was already a twisted version of what God had said, and then the serpent says, no, 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 no. 
if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. What shame says to you is that shame says to you, you're lacking something. If you look shame in the eye, shame will say to you, you've got something missing in your life. Note what, shame, what the serpent said. The serpent said, you will be like God. Two chapters ago, when God had created Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.27, what did it say? And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And, and this is a very important theological concept. We're going to spend a whole month talking about being created in the image of God next year. Because it is so important and we are so excited. I'm really excited about next year. Uh, and, and we're going to talk about it. But the whole reference point of this is that man and woman... Adam and Eve were already like God. If you're created in God's image, you, you're like God. And this serpent comes up, Eve gives him her attention, looks into his eyes, and he says, subtly, you're not like God. Your identity, your true identity, no, 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 you, God's just being nice. You don't have it all yet, but if you get that fruit, you will. Shame has this way of taking what was good and what is true about yourself and still saying, nah, you're lacking something. And in that moment, Eve fell into shame's trap, takes of the fruit and eats of the fruit, gives it to her husband. And then there was this detail that I... I just struggled with for so long because it said this, that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and their eyes were open. The serpent said, your eyes will be open and then their eyes were open. I was like, so what? Does that really mean that God was withholding something? The serpent was right. But then I started to observe what was taking place. And here's what I want to show you about what shame does. I don't believe that Adam and Eve did not know right from wrong which is what um, the, the serpent was saying. Your eyes will be open. You will know good from evil, right from wrong. You have this discernment. And I don't believe that Adam and Eve did not have that faculty, didn't have that ability in themselves because Eve was able to reply to the serpent what they were supposed to do according to God's plan, right? She, uh, she didn't just say, oh, I don't, she wasn't like completely oblivious to how life was meant to work. She understood the structure and the order of the garden and she therefore knew good from evil. And, and another thing that is really important is that God would not be able to punish sin in Adam and Eve in them taking the fruit if they didn't understand good from evil. You cannot punish someone when they are completely ignorant and unable to tell right from wrong. When you see your child running away like your two-year-old child that has just learned how to sprint and you see the child running away from you do you go, bad child, you are a terrible person. Don't you know that you are meant to stay with me? No, 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 you're like, this is a two-year-old who has not learned right from wrong. I cannot overly punish this child. I need to show consequences maybe. I need to show, I need to teach what is right. Like all the parents are laughing because they know. They want to bite their child's head off in those moments, but they know my child is two. They don't know fully right from wrong. In the same way, God would not have been able to give consequences because he's a just God. He would not have gone to Adam and Eve and gone, uh, uh, you, 
even though you are completely oblivious to what is good and evil and chose evil, I'm still going to give it to you. No, no, God would have been like, okay, look, you, didn't, you weren't able to tell. You just aren't able to tell. So I believe that Adam and Eve had an ability to understand good from evil. But they still had their eyes open in a way that it had been closed previously. And I argue according to God's design. What were their eyes open to? Their eyes were open to an awareness of good and evil within themselves. Self-consciously. You see, when they ate of the fruit and had their eyes open to good and evil, they didn't get the snake, which represented evil. They didn't kill the snake representing evil. If it was an external thing, they would have recognized, that guy lied to me, I'm going to punish that guy. No, what was the first thing they did? They had an awareness that they were naked. What shame is comes from this place of an overactive self-awareness of what is good and evil within us. And I say overactive because I believe that it's important to be self-aware. But what shame does is that it ranks, ramps it up to the point where you're constantly thinking about your inadequacies. You're constantly thinking about where you are lacking. You're constantly thinking about your inferiority. And that's what happened in that moment. They had always been okay with it, but suddenly they were aware that maybe nakedness isn't so great. But the whole point of nakedness not being so great, I don't know if it's just necessarily a physical thing. I think it was the fact that as their awareness of themselves suddenly ramped up to this new level, their eyes were open, suddenly they were like, I don't want people to fully see me for who I am. So what did they do? They started to hide. They started to hide. They made these coverings for themselves in order to hide. I'm wondering how many of you, I don't even know you. You come every Sunday, but I don't know you. Why? Because I can only see your coverings. Shame has so gripped your life that I have never actually seen what your heart looks like. I've never actually seen what you truly are on the inside. And you're happy about that because you're worried about what I'm going to see. And so we maintain these projections, these masks, these coverings of ourselves and we stand at a distance and then even more than that we begin to hide from God Adam and Eve heard God coming as he always does in the cool of the day and they hid among the trees and very much like this analogy of the lamp and us what shame does is that with this self-awareness of our lack Instead of going into God's presence, we send an image of ourselves while we're standing all the way back here. We're really hiding from God. But it's not a game. We don't want God to find us. We very much fear the presence of God. If this is beginning to resound in your life, it's because shame is speaking to you. 
You see, there was this piece of research that was done quite recently. Psychologists went to this juvenile prison with all these boys, and they did a bit of a, a, a survey of these boys, and in particular, they were looking into the emotions of guilt and shame. And as we all know, that the prison system isn't great, and a lot of people, especially when they go into the prison system when they were young, they will reoffend. And so they, they, they wanted to just see certain correlations and stuff like that, and they found a couple of groups of boys. One of the groups of boys had experienced a high level of guilt because of what they had done. And they, uh, in the testing, they, they scored really highly on, on the emotion of guilt. And what they found was that this group of boys who were guilty or who felt uh, a heavy sense of guilt on their lives, when they were released from prison, they actually generally became productive members of society. They did not reoffend. Why? Because guilt tells you I did that wrong, so why not stop doing that stuff? And so there was change in their lives. Guilt motivated them to change. Guilt motivated them to find something better for their lives. But then there was another group of boys who had experienced a high level of shame. And what they found amongst that group of boys is that most of them reoffended when they left prison. Why? Because shame told them who they were. You are always going to be like that. You didn't do it because you wanted to do something wrong. You did it because you are wrong. You didn't just make a mistake. You are the mistake. And what shame does is that it ranks us according to what we think is social hierarchy. This is crazy when I was reading this because what shame does is that it tells us that society, our culture, our community is, is, is ranked. And then it tells us, you're right there. Shame over time reinforces that sense that I am not good enough. And so those boys who experienced a high level of shame did not think that they were going to be able to go anywhere in life because their shame reinforced that you are never going to be good enough. Shame maintains that identity where guilt can motivate us to do something and to rise up. Shame tells us you better hide because you don't want anyone to ever see you. You don't want anyone to ever know you. Shame puts you in your place. So why God needs us to deal with shame is that shame stops us from entering His presence. If you want to hear from God, if you know that God's voice is what is going to bring you freedom and life, you're going to need to deal with shame. Why? Because God's presence and word is like a light. It reveals whatever is hidden and it, 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 it brings up whatever is concealed. That is what Luke chapter 8 tells us. And so what happens in our lives is that when we make the effort to come in into God's presence, the light shines, reveals the hidden stuff in us, which is always shameful. And our reaction to it, our natural reaction to it, is to hide and to run away. We're never able to fully experience God's presence because we are actually scared of what God is going to say to us. One researcher put it this way. Shame, what shame fears the most of all 
is the uncovering of the self in this wretched and disgusting condition. And so people have stopped coming to God because of shame, because really they're scared of rejection. Really they're scared of what God is going to say. They're really scared of how God is going to react to them. And when we come into God's presence and all this stuff is revealed, it's like, how, how could you love me? Why even try getting close to God if all he's going to do is to reject me? I might as well self-select and walk away first. Spares me the pain of that rejection. That is the message of shame. This awareness of your brokenness and your wretchedness. It's a terrible thing. It's so terrible that a psychologist wrote this, shame is not an emotion, it is self-abuse. With the emotions used as instruments of flagellation. Flagellation just means whipping, self-whipping. Shame was never God's intention for you to carry. And we need to deal with shame if we are to come into God's presence truly. So there are two steps that we need to take. The first step is this. We need to uncover shame. We need to uncover shame because that is where shame begins to wilt. But the thing about shame is that it tells us that you don't want to do this. It, it causes us to fear what people are thinking and more importantly, what God is thinking. And, and it stops us from really coming into a place where God is. That is what shame is trying to tell you. It, it, it begins to arc up. Whenever you need more of God, shame begins to arc up and it begins to tell you, no, 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 you don't deserve this. You don't deserve the light. You don't deserve freedom. You don't deserve any of this. You, you're, you're nothing. You're, you're, you're nothing like Pastor Beck, who's always holy and always nice and always together. And until you're like Pastor Beck, you, you're never going to get into God's presence. And so because you, you, you don't deserve it, just walk away. Just, just turn away. And, and, and the moment we, we say, no, 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 I want to go into God's presence, it begins and say, but do you remember that time that you did that? Do you remember that time? Do you remember that thought? Do you remember that anger? Do you remember that envy? Do you remember that lust? Do you remember that thing that you did wrong? You didn't do it because you just did something wrong. You did it because you are wrong. You're broken. You're never going to be accepted by God. Shame begins to scream in the midst of you coming into God's presence because it doesn't want to be uncovered. But then if we persevere in this and learn how to come into God's presence, then we get to step two, which is to receive grace. See, shame tells you that you don't deserve grace. Shame tells you that, no, 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 that's not for you. Which is the biggest, craziest lie. Because all of us are undeserving of God's grace. By definition, it is grace. It is a free gift. You know, something quite funny is that as I was growing up on this specific day of the year, 10th of October, you might want to write this day down. On the 10th of October, as I was growing up every single year, I would wake up and there would be these people singing this song to me as though they were happy that I was alive. Happy birthday to you. 
have even, and then they would give me presents. Like my favorite was Lego sets. I loved Lego sets. And if I think back to each and every one of those years, there were many years that I think I deserve a lump of coal or slap across the face. Why should they be happy? Why should my parents be happy that I'm alive? Because they, they love me. They simply love me. This love wasn't earned. This gift that they gave to me is because of my identity, because I am son. It wasn't because I earned their affections. It wasn't because I ate my food as they told me to. It wasn't because I did my homework as they told me to. I didn't do a lot of that kind of stuff. I didn't deserve that. And in the same way, when we come into God's presence and we say, I want to receive grace, is not, God doesn't go into a checklist and go, yep, yep, no, no, no. Oh, you know what? On the balance of things, you don't deserve it. You all don't flipping deserve it, people. And I, this message is so important to me uh, in particular this year because God has been revealing a lot of stuff in me, understanding who He is and His heart for people. In, in, in July this year, God put on my heart that I needed to deal with certain things in my life and, 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 and the outworking of that, which is really crazy because I didn't think that this is how things are meant to work, but God does this. Uh, we were at Hillsong Conference and, and uh, it was a moment where I think I was like right here with God. And so he was talking to me and he was revealing things about me and I didn't love all of that. And then he told me what I needed to do and he told me to adopt Robin as, as my daughter just to you know, walk life with her and literally I've spoken to other pastors about this and and I don't know why it hasn't happened to anyone else but it's happened to me and the thing about this is that the moment I asked Robin and I said Robin do you want me to do this whole dad thing with you because I've got no idea what I'm doing like honestly I'm probably going to fail I'm probably going to be the worst person in the world in your life you're going to be annoyed with me Uh, I'm going to bug you all your every day and stuff like that but but let me tell you what happened inside God showed me what I think is a glimpse of unconditional love. It showed me how he sees me. Because I've never had kids before. I've got a cat. The good thing about cats is that they leave you alone. I love my cat. And then he's like, all right, I'm done. Off he goes. I'm like, okay, I'll get on my life. Thanks. It's like a business transaction. But with a human being, it's not the same. And it's like, it doesn't matter what Robin does. The love hasn't changed. She can't earn any more of my love. And she can't push away any of this love. Yeah, there can be moments of pride that there's growth and there's change. And there are moments of frustration because we go through life and we don't always make the best choices. And there's all of that stuff, but the love hasn't changed. And the thing about being a dad is that I always want the best. I always want to give my best for her best. And that is the way it is. And then as I was kind of thinking about this, I think God was saying, because you didn't really understand how I see you, Nate. Because you sometimes you're still trying to earn my grace. And all I'm saying is receive the grace. And some of us are approaching God and you're seeing all the stuff that is deficient inside of you, which is true. All of us are broken. All of us have got gear. All of us have got things. But that's what the Bible says in Hebrews 4 verse 16. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
Not with flagellation, not with whipping and saying, I'm such a worm. God doesn't want bruises on your knees as you are kind of like kneeling your way into his presence. God is not looking for any of that. God is just saying, come on, run in. Run in. Because you know that I'm always going to accept you. You know that I've always got enough for you. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We're going to close real soon. Let's get the band up. I feel like I need to get out of the way. I need to get out of the way because God wants to show you that he loves you. I need to get out of the way because I don't think I've got enough words to express what God wants to do in your life. As I was preparing this message and I was thinking about it, God just put so deeply inside of my heart, there are so many of you that do not have a right relationship with Him, not because of what He is thinking about you, not because of your actions, but it's because about your position about that sense and your identity that, that you are not able to come into His presence. You are afraid of what He's thinking of you. And, and God wants to just have this moment with you where He says, you have been accepted. You have been dealt with. Your past is not an issue. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. When I was dealing with shame in my life, number of years ago, this verse came to me as in Psalm 51, is when David had committed adultery and murder. And in the midst of this amazing amount of guilt and shame that he was experiencing, he writes these words, a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. There's some of you that are despising yourself. There's some of you with this awareness of where you are at. You are hating yourself. There are moments of self-loathing. And, and, and so you, maybe you try to find this, this, this magazine or this app that teaches you 30 steps to self-love. And you go into a cave and you try to practice those things, but it's not happening. Why? Because there's only one place of wholeness. And that is in the presence of God when He stares into your eyes and you into Him. And He says, you are okay. You I love. You, I accept. You. I wonder what would be different in that story of Adam and Eve actually came out into God's presence when he called out for them. I wonder whether the course of history would be different. If you want to live according to shame, shame will always tell you you are insufficient. We can go to our loved ones, other human beings try to find our acceptance, and to some extent it helps because that's how we've been created, social creatures. But let me just issue a warning. If you try to find someone else to tell you that you're whole and okay, but they don't know that they are whole and okay, they're not going to be able to love you. Beck and I are we are in the process of um, exploring adoption. We are going to be one day parents of a child that maybe hasn't even been born yet. And we went for a training session yesterday. And um, in our group, there was, uh, there was a guy who was adopted as a kid, but he wasn't told that he was adopted until much later. I could sense 
a crazy amount of anger that was in his heart because he didn't know whether he belonged on this earth or not. He did not know whether there was anyone that would ever accept him or not. And so he said, I use that pain of my rejection. And I've worked the hardest that I've ever, than any other person, and my sport and my work, all of this stuff. I work so hard so that I'm here where I am. And now the next thing for me is that I want a family because I didn't have one. So I want a family. I was sitting two seats away from him. And I was so heartbroken and at the same time scared because this dad, this future dad's not going to know how to love because he hasn't been loved. It was crazy. He hadn't dealt with his rejection yet. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, oh my gosh. What a blessing it is to know a God who has already accepted us. Our creator who has designed us put us together and say, I know you and I accept you. I love you unconditionally. You can't do anything to change that. This morning, if you are sensing that rejection of yourself, that shame talking, you need to deal with it. You need to uncover it and then you need to receive grace. For those who are doing well, let me tell you, shame has a way of weaseling into your life every now and then. Keep coming back to God. Another cool little thing as a little tidbit, as I just want to leave that there because I think it's really important. But the greatest way to deal with shame is actually to receive grace. Receive grace from God, but also receive grace from other people. Research is showing that people who learn how to receive grace from people who truly love them are able to deal with shame better. They learn how to get rid of that sense of ranking and, and, and where they stand in their life. Some of you need to receive grace. Some of you are coming to God, but in your life, you don't let anyone in. There's this wall inside of your life. You don't know if you can trust anyone. You need to deal with that. That is going to kill you. It's going to stop you in your tracks. So this morning, first and foremost, if you don't know God, I want to lead you in a prayer. I want to lead everyone in a prayer of accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Uh, he's, he's already standing at the door of your heart. It's what he says. Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. And he says, please let me in. And so if you've been holding Jesus back, this morning I want to lead you in a prayer so that you can open the door of your heart and allow Him in. Everyone close your eyes, bow your heads, and say this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I know I'm broken. I know I've sinned. But I want to invite you into my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. Show me your love. Wash me over. Heal me. Cleanse me. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. If you would like to find out more about Lyft, check out our website at theliftchurch.com.au.